0: Today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. Transitioning your team to work from home? Managing a gazillion SSH keys, database passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet StrongDM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access. Automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary access that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. StrongDM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com GTC.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creative Code. This is episode 178. This is Shantae Thurman, and I'm introducing my co-panelist, awesome co-panelist, Rain Henrik.
2: Hi, Shantae. I don't really believe that's episode 178, but people are telling me that that's true. I'm here with my friend Jacob Stubel.
3: Hello, and I'm here with Avdi Grimm.
4: Hello, and we are here today with Emily Robinson, who is a senior data scientist at Warby Parker, maker of very nice glasses, I might add, where she works on a centralized team tackling some of the company's biggest projects. Previously, she worked at Etsy and DataCamp as a data scientist, holds a master's degree in management, and gives talks across the country, as well as writing on her blog, HookedOnData.org, about A-B testing, programming in R, and data science careers. And she published a book, Build a Career in Data Science, with Jacqueline Nolis, about all the non-technical knowledge and skills you need to get and succeed in a data science role. Welcome, Emily.
5: Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Emily, what
4: is your superpower?
5: So I would say my superpower is finding all the dogs to pet. So I'm a big fan of dogs. And my husband has a photo album of me petting all these. I always ask permission, but petting all dogs. And we have this like on a trip we take. So there's like petting dogs in France. There's our trip to Japan. There's across the country. Unfortunately, in these times, you know, with, with coronavirus, I've had to, you know, scale back. But I'm looking forward to resuming my dog petting. What a rewarding
4: power.
1: <laughs> yeah, it says something about you if the dogs can trust you, huh?
5: Yeah, normally I've had pretty good luck, except for one yappy dog actually in our building that does not like me very much. But mostly, it's always really fun to see the different personalities of dogs and to chat with the owners. And I actually, so I have a part-time dog myself, as I like to call her. Uh, so my parents have a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel and we will keep her sometimes. But when I don't have her, it's nice to find the other dogs around New York City.
2: Nice. So you're in New York City usually? That's a a whole thing.
5: Yes, that's a a whole thing right now. Um, So actually, as of the recording date, so we came out uh, about a week and a half ago to Utah to stay with my parents. Um, So we've been isolating in the guest house uh, since we arrived for the full 14 days. But yeah, it's definitely scary times across the, the country and the world right now.
1: Yes, indeed it is. It's interesting because I think we'll see. I'm in I'm in Illinois. You sound like you're in New York, Jacob. You're in Kentucky. Rain over in Seattle or Portland.
2: Portland, thank Portland.
1: God. Uh, where where are you?
4: At the moment, I'm in St. Louis.
1: <laughs> I love how you say in the at the moment. All right. So is there, are we all on lockdown?
2: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Locked more or less. Yeah. All right. Well, well we are. The city should be more than it is.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I think the... <laughs> People probably won't don't necessarily agree with me, but I think that that's probably true. I just see a lot of people. I hear lots of activity. I'm like, I've been in cooped up in the house for like if, more than a week now.
2: So obviously, this is on everyone's minds. But we already did a, a coronavirus podcast. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've taken us towards a dark place. So maybe let's talk about data science or, or the, like, <laughs> all the stuff around data science.
1: Yeah, data science and coronavirus? That sounds great.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, Just there are kidding. too many
5: of those on on Twitter already, too many graphs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you could tell us about how you got into data science. That would yeah. be awesome.
5: Absolutely. My data science journey, I would say, started somewhat in college. So I went to Rice University down in Houston from 2010 to 2014, and I minored in statistics there. And at that time, Hadley Wickham was a professor of stats. Uh, And so for any of listeners who don't use R, Hadley is one of the most prominent R programmers. He's a creator of some of the most popular packages, ggplot2, dplyr, for all stuff you need in data science, visualizing, manipulating data, cleaning it, et cetera. Um, So I got a really good start there. And then I went on to get my master's in uh, management specializing organizational behavior. And that was doing social science research, which is a pretty similar process to data science. So you have to, come up with a question, find data to analyze to figure out the answer to that and then uh, present it to audiences ranging from you know professors who have been specializing in this field for decades to uh, professors in maybe totally other departments. I decided academia wasn't quite for me, so I was in a PhD program, but decided to leave with my master's and went on to do a data science bootcamp camp called Metis, uh, so I could up my Python skills in addition to R, and then also uh, some machine learning, because that hadn't uh, been covered that extensively in my undergraduate or master's. Yeah, and then since then, I got my first data science job at Etsy. Uh went on to DataCamp, now at Warby Parker. At Etsy and DataCamp, uh, I ended up specializing a lot in A-B testing, but also doing general analytics, um, been working on some forecasting projects, dashboarding for Warby Parker, and yeah, just been really enjoying getting into this field, getting to know people uh, since I moved back to New York about three and a half years ago.
2: So I really want to talk about the uh, organizational behavior stuff. Maybe we can get to that later
5: yeah absolutely i found that helpful both in terms of the you know kind of the traditional skills you would think like this st- you know i took like stats and math and other stuff but actually a lot of what my research there has helped with in like writing the book and things like negotiation and communication um you know obviously there's a lot of teamwork there's lots of studies around this and it was it was really helpful to have that background in the literature
2: so i i have a sort of specific question but i'm really curious um when you were designing these studies were these all uh, I'm assuming these were all quantitative studies. Is yeah, that your so, background?
5: Yeah. so organizational behavior, you could have either qualitative or quantitative, right? So some of my colleagues would work on things. Um and even qualitative, though, you're doing you know some, usually some sort of data analysis, right? Like you record interviews and and you look for yeah, themes, like and coding
2: other and stuff,
5: yeah, exactly. But yes. so mine was quantitative and specifically ex- mostly experimental.
2: What kinds of things did you study?
5: So I studied the experience of women in STEM fields. Sometimes people often find in academia, uh, people call it like me search. Uh, Very often people are studying things that, you know, experiences that they've had or they've had trouble with. Um, Like one of my professors just published a book on dual career couples. Um, That's her research. And she is part of a dual career couple, a two person uh, academic couple. And yeah, so I, I studied that. And so specifically, one thing I was interested in was the idea of passion, right? So I feel like especially in technical fields, you often hear this idea of like, oh, you have to be really passionate about your work. And I do think it can be dangerous when it's narrowly defined how that how people would tell that you're passionate. Uh, so for example, I think one thing in computer science, there was a really great book I think it's called Unlocking the Clubhouse, uh, which was some Carnegie Mellon professors back in the 80s or 90s were looking at computer science students, and they're finding women would often say, well, like, I don't know if I'm passionate enough because I didn't grow up doing this, right? Like, I don't want to do this all the time. I don't, you know, I, I have other hobbies. And so they got this idea in the head that one, you need to be passionate to like succeed and to do computer science, but two what it looked like to be passionate was this very narrow definition um, that also men often didn't fit either. But because women already were in the minority and like had other signals, like this was just something added on of like, oh, I guess I don't belong here. So that was an idea that really fascinated me.
2: Well, I feel like I could talk about this for another hour, but that would be selfish.
5: <laughs> uh, no, but I think it's it's good cuz I think you see it in data science as well right and I do think it can be a form of gatekeeping so I in general I'm I very passionate about or, or rather against like passionate about being against gatekeeping and being against these like uh, laundry lists of like oh you have to know all of these things before you know or you're a fake data scientist right and I just think that's a very damaging viewpoint and often the goalposts people put is like based on where that they are at right and especially because data science is such a broad field you know you'll never know everything right like even the world's expert in natural language processing may know nothing about forecasting right and may be worse at forecasting than someone who just came out of a boot camp because they happened to study that for a week and so I think the idea of like making this list I mean yes you know you could try to get some foundations but after that it's just such a a broad field that it doesn't really make sense to be like, oh, you need to do deep learning to be a real data scientist. No, there are tons of data scientists, right? Like doing very impactful work that has nothing to do with deep learning and deep learning wouldn't help at all with the work that they're doing.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, statistics, a field that has existed for five years.
5: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like it would be,
1: I think, so I'm coming at this from, you know, um, from an executive search point of view, I definitely have recruited data scientists. But, like, I have a master's degree in organizational leadership and development where I spend a lot of time in behavioral science just kind of examining why I do something or why others do something. And even before we talk about that, I would just love to kind of, for everyone listening, I think that data science is one of those catch-all terms now. And so I would I would love to hear what, how you're defining data science so that we can kind of get that on the record and kind of set that container for people.
5: Yeah, yeah that we all
2: know when other people are wrong. <laughs> right,
5: right yeah, I mean, this is this is something that is can be controversial, but how we define data science is like the process of making data useful, right? And so that's pretty broad. And I do think I want to distinguish, for example, like people can be doing data science. They may not be called data scientists. Um, In some case, maybe they couldn't get a job to data scientists, but similarly, like, you know, all of us do writing as part of our jobs. We wouldn't necessarily say we're professional writers, but we can maybe, you know, work on the craft. It's helpful if we're better at it and so on. And I do think one thing we talk about in the first chapter of our book is dividing up data science into three components, which I think is helpful. So the three ones we see are analytics, decision science, and machine learning. So analytics, basically about taking data that already exists or collecting it and just kind of presenting it as is, right? So like analytics would be, we ran a survey and we said, you know, 20% of people responded to this. We got 800 responses. They were, you know, 40% women and so on, right? Just sort of taking the data at face value, um, which is often very, very useful for a lot of companies, right? It's It's been surprising to me, especially at earlier stage companies, how often they don't have some basic metrics, and then also haven't looked at certain data that could be very illuminating for, you know, the path forward. So that's one part. And then decision science is kind of taking that, but adding on some statistics, adding on maybe some of that uh, psychology knowledge and understanding, okay, what do we do? based on this data, right? So like with a survey, for example, you could say, oh, we could look at what was the non-response rate? There are methods to adjust for the fact that like, oh, you know, we only 30% of people we sent it to responded and maybe we know the demographics of who we sent it to and it turned out, you know, a high proportion of women versus men responded. So how do we deal with that? So that's a second component. And then finally, you have machine learning, which I think is often what people think of when they think of data science, right? So like Amazon's Algorithms for uh, deciding, you know, what should show up when you search for Harry Potter, making predictions of, you know, uh, how likely someone is to default on a loan and so on and so forth. Right. So machine learning is really all a lot about predictions, right? Because underlying that recommendation algorithm is they're trying to optimize for something, you know, and I assume it's something like, you know, purchasing, right? Like, and so underlying all of that is a prediction of which arrangement is going to give us the best outcome.
1: That was awesome. Thank you so much. I love how you just break that down. Because I think that that is like setting that that container and kind of saying that there's sort of at least right as of right now, kind of these three buckets that you might fall into help people understand, uh, especially those who are considering a career in data science, how they might go about starting to actually get to that. And it, I want to say in your book, at one point, I read, this was about building a career. So are you now doing any like specific outreach to people or going on a book tour to kind of explain to different demographics on how they could actually get into this field?
5: Yeah. So unfortunately, some of that has been delayed because of the virus. So we were going to do like a book launch. So my co-author Jacqueline's in Seattle. Uh, we were going to do a book launch party there and one in New York. Obviously, that for now is pushed off indefinitely. But I do hope that I can, I think, for example, boot camps could really benefit from the book. The book is divided into four sections. The first quarter is for people kind of like thinking about data science and wanting to know like, what's it look like at different companies? What are the options for getting the skills? The second quarter is great. Like, you know, I have the skills. uh, How do I start applying for jobs? And what's the interview process like negotiating an offer? The third quarter is I've got the job. But what's going to look like in the first months? How do I communicate with stakeholders? How do I make a good analysis? And then finally, the last quarter is, all right, you know, I've kind of settled into the role, but how do I continue to grow? So things like dealing with failure, starting to connect to the community through things like speaking or contributing to open source, and then even uh, thinking about leaving your job for the next one. Uh, So I think really, you know, there's a lot for, even if someone's already uh, maybe got their first data science job, the the second half of the book might be helpful. Um, But we're definitely trying to think about like, we wrote this book. As anyone who's written a book will know, like, this was not a financial decision, right? The number of hours we put into it versus, like, what we'll get back. Uh, you know, Jacqueline's an independent consultant. She could have made much more by doing consulting, right? We didn't write this book because we wanted to make a lot of money. We wanted to write it because this was the kind of resource we wanted uh, or we would have liked to have when we were entering the field. So we're definitely trying to think of, okay, how do we you know, help get this into the hands of people who could who could really use this. So another example, a professor from Chile actually reached out and asked about using part of our book for his class. And so we're going to see what we can do there. That's
1: awesome. Thank you.
2: Can I just really quickly dig into the bit about dealing with failure? What did you write about dealing with failure for data scientists?
5: Yeah, Jacqueline and I split the book so we each wrote half the chapters. This was Jacqueline's chapter, but obviously we edited each other's extensively. So a big part she actually gave a talk about her some of her data science failures, which I think would be great to link to for people to look at. Um but in the book one of the things we talk about is failure is pretty much inevitable in data science because often you're trying to do something that's never been done before, right? There's a little less true with analytics, because analytics, you may fail to find the data. But often you can you can find some data, you can work around it, right? You can or you can like gather the data, but something like machine learning prediction, there may just not be signal, right? You may be trying to predict something. And you know, you're, you're trying these different models, and like nothing's working really well. And it can be really frustrating because, you know, you wonder like, oh, if I was a better data scientist, would I be able to do this? But often it's like there may just not be a signal. So a couple of things we talk about is like how to um, emotionally handle it. We also talk about how to keep from, for example, surprising your stakeholders with a big failure. So one thing to do there is like check in like weekly, for example, so it's not like you disappear for months. And they don't hear any updates or they hear they're like, oh, no, everything's great. And then it's like, no, actually, we have nothing. Uh, Right. You don't want to surprise. You don't want to give people bad surprises. And the final thing is, I realize actually is, you know, failing is good. It means that you're growing. And actually, I do think it's possible to have a data science career without facing a lot of failures. But, you know, uh, it's sort of funny to say this, but like that in in and of itself is a bit of a failure. Right. Because it means you're not taking risks. You're not taking on projects that you know, potentially are stretching your abilities or have the chance not to succeed and you're, you're playing it safe. But ultimately, these failures are what's going to really help you grow in the long run.
2: That almost sounds like advice that would be helpful for anyone.
5: Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. There, there is certainly some of this, some of this book is like, you know, it's kind of like general good life advice or general career advice, like the negotiating chapter. There's some stuff specific to data science, but a lot of the principles we talk to really apply to any job.
2: Did any of your academic work help prepare you to write this book?
5: Yeah, definitely. Um, so especially the, for example, the chapter on negotiations, um, there's a lot of literature out there, which you know I, I drew on to write about it. And I think one thing that was interesting to me is, so I have a blog and the post that got the most attention, not in terms, like I don't really pay attention to page views, but in terms of like people on Twitter, like not just retweeting, but like quote tweeting it and like, you know, saying how it impacted them was a post on sponsorship. And it's funny because this wasn't something I... I had realized would be so impactful because I didn't realize how many people weren't familiar with the concept. And so if any listeners aren't, uh, you're probably very familiar with mentorship, right? Like the idea of a mentor, it's someone who gives advice. Uh, you keep hearing like mentorship is very important. But sponsorship actually is often the bigger driver of people's career success because sponsorship is about someone giving you opportunities. So that could be someone recommending you to give a talk at a conference. It could be your boss bringing up your name in a meeting uh, for an important project. Uh, It could be getting funding from someone. And this is something that I've been uh, very fortunate to benefit from. And I do think part of what I write about is like what it means, how to look for it, and also how to be a sponsor, because you might not realize, even if you're pretty early in your career, you can already start being a sponsor for other people. And the idea of sponsorship was something that I had learned about, um, because that's something that's very studied. And for example, there's a lot of studies that women are over mentored, but under sponsored and actually, and the mentorship ends up not being that critical where the sponsorship really is. Is for advancement.
3: You were talking a little bit about how there's there is data science as in the practice and then data scientists who are what something you are, but and uh, lots of different people in many different roles can perform data science. Do you see the practice of data science being spread out across more roles in the future? Like would you see a full stack engineer dipping their toe into data science more, or do you see it as the opposite of like it being sort of consolidated among like a core team of data scientists?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think it's going to be spread out more. Um, Again, like it depends, like some people would say, um, like some basic, like, you know, numerical literacy or being able to work in spreadsheets, it would be like, that's not data science. But I think most people can agree that's getting more and more common. You see in marketing, for example, you know, it's it's become, you know, more needed in the field or like more, if, if you have them, it's very good if you have some quantitative skills, right? Because a lot of like understanding how ads are performing, you know, working with like the, you know, they're a little bit black box, like Facebook's ad algorithms. I do think that's becoming more and more common especially as you hear organizations like to say, right, that they're data driven. And so to the, you know, it's becoming more like people, even if they're maybe not inclined to do it, like they're getting this top down mandate of, all right, we need like metrics, you know, personal goal setting, like that's becoming more popular in department goal setting. Uh, So I do think that we're going to be seeing more and more people upskilling on this. I think that's good, because I think, you know, it's just like, right, you wouldn't, you know, no one can really have a job now if they can't write and actually, you know, and and write fairly well. um, And that can really advance your career. And I think we're going to see something similar with like, the ability to work with numbers is going to become more and more important.
1: That's just a really interesting way to think about it, I think, because you like you're saying that writing and reading are like, you know, these are these are critical skills that anybody should have when they go into the workforce. And I do wonder, in terms of like math, like I've never been a person that excels at math. But I think now that there's so many tools out there available to me that, you know, perhaps my gaps in understanding of something can be augmented with, with me using a particular, you know, tool or resource. Um, so I think as we have more and more emerging technology or technologies becoming available to everyone, that this should be a skill set or something like a competency that we'll see people Kind of be able to grasp a little bit more and perhaps use more strongly in their current roles. Do you have anything in in terms of like recommendations and like for somebody like me who who wants to kind of strengthen this skill, but wants to do it in a way that's um, not intimidating and indigestible, I guess is probably the word.
5: Yeah, so I actually haven't read these books, but I've heard really good things about them from like, you know, colleagues whose opinion I trust. So I would definitely recommend them. So the art of statistics is one, you know, I also want to clarify, like a lot of this is not talking about you need to be able to do advanced calculus or something, right? But it's understanding things like, okay, what are potential biases that could happen in the data? Like what is survivorship bias and why would that matter? When might I use a mean instead of a median and why might one of them be misleading, So the art of statistics, I think, is a good introduction to like different stats terms. I've also heard good things about how charts lie, which again is trying to, I think a big component is also being able to thoughtfully consume uh, information, right? And uh, so this could be, you know, a popular science article, um, like having a little bit of understanding of like, okay, what's a, what's a randomized control trial? Like, why would, like, maybe I not want to trust something that has 20 data points, you know, or like looking at a, at a visualization and being like, oh, I wonder, like, you know, maybe they didn't control for this. So I think those are two books that uh, would be good to get started with. And I see also someone recommends uh, the Cartoon Guide to Statistics. But yeah, I think there's... Do you know yeah, that book? I've heard of it. I don't know it. And I would recommend starting with books like that rather than, I don't know, like trying to pick up like an intro to statistics textbook. Uh, yeah. Because I do think there's some books that are really written to be an excess but not like dumbing it down but just like helping you know what you need to know um, and being really excessively written.
3: You, Thank you. Even though it is helpful and it is useful knowledge understanding the math and having an intuition around statistics are different things and serve different roles.
5: Yeah exactly so I don't think you need to like necessarily start with the math especially if you're just you know you're not necessarily planning to become a data scientist you just want to be more savvy.
2: I will say that having done a few different kinds of math for fun, because I'm weird, (laughs) statistics is by far the hardest math I've ever tried to do. And it's not because the math per se is hard. It's because knowing what the right thing to do is, is very hard.
5: Yeah, I think stats is really hard. Because for example, like statistical tests, like, they will always give you an answer, right? Like, so maybe people like for the t test like comparing two different means, like, are they significantly different? Like, You'll get back a number, but it may not be at all meaningful for like answering the question that you had, you know, if the underlying assumptions aren't met. And I do think that is, it's something that is very, very challenging. Same thing with like forecasting methods, all these other things, you're gonna, it's gonna spit back a number, but it can be hard to tell sometimes, okay, but like, is that actually representing like the answer to the question? Or am I just gonna fool myself?
2: Yeah. Or like, for example, I'm trying to model this system. And it has this property that I want a statistical sort of representation of which of these 50 different distributions is the right one to use to model this particular part of the problem.
5: Yeah, and I do think there's some things that are not very accessibly written that can really and it's like, oh, you're like diving into this, like, you know, massive academic papers. So one book I'm excited to read, which I just ordered is Statistical Rethinking. Uh, so I don't, I, I haven't done much, you know, Bayesian statistics, which, you know, So are these two fields like frequentist and Bayesian, but I've heard really, really good things about this book that is basically an introduction to Bayes, like how you would use it. Uh, and it's supposed to be just, you know, excellently written. And, and the person who wrote it, I think, actually is uh, in the anthropology, I think, department, like he says, like, he's not someone who necessarily planned on writing a stats book. But I think that's part of what makes it very accessible, right? As he doesn't come from this background of like, oh, this is something like I love for the pure joy of like the mathematics of stats. He's like, I need this to be useful. Like stats is a tool for me to answer these questions that I care about. And uh, I think that's what really helped him write a book that a lot of people have benefited from.
2: If you're interested, uh, this is for our readers, obviously not, not you, sorry, in understand, like trying to parse studies and understand causation and confounding and all those things, a book that I would definitely recommend is The Book of Why by Judea Pearl. It is extremely good. So, um, D, I think you wanted to talk more about sponsorship, and I would also yeah. like to talk more about sponsorship. Do you want to lead us into that?
4: Uh, Emily, I want to return, if we could, to the, the concept of sponsorship. I really love that you brought that up and that you're making the distinction between that and mentorship. I think that's something that we don't think about enough. And I've definitely, I have observed, especially as I've gotten Older, Like I've I've observed the difference of like, I am more and more aware that there's a lot of implicit power just in like who I know, the groups that I'm part of, the private slacks that I'm part of, and who gets, like you said, who gets recommended to somebody else for an invitation to a conference. There's a lot of little things like this that we don't always think about that really do make the difference, I think, or can make the difference in people's careers.
5: Yeah. And I think, you know, sponsorship is one component of like generally like how important your network is. Right. And I think this term can uh, like networking can be a term people really hate. A lot of people find jobs through their network. As you said, like a lot of people, you know, if you want to start speaking, it often happen uh, from people, you know, and that it's kind of the snowball effect. It's interesting because I think traditionally in some fields, like Most of it was about your network in your company, especially if you were at a larger company or one like a like a law firm or something uh, where it really mattered that you impress the partners. because That's going to matter when you go up to partnership. But now I think especially in tech, because people move around fairly often between jobs, like I found my most important network has been, you know, my network uh, often outside of my company. Um, so this is how I've gotten uh, speaking opportunities. It's also been really nice just to have a community. Uh, like I'm a really big fan of and a part of Our Ladies, which is a global organization to promote the advancement experience of women and gender minorities in our, uh, that now is, I think, more than, uh, 80 chapters around the globe, like 50 different countries. And there's a New York City group. And that's been huge for me because sometimes you just need someone to talk to who's going through maybe a similar experience or having similar frustrations. And you might not have that at your company because maybe you're the only data scientist or one of a, a small team and your work is very different than the others. So it can be really nice to have that outside community.
4: Something that I really love about sponsorship is it can actually be easier than mentorship because, like, you know, when I think about mentoring something, I think of it as shouldering a huge responsibility. But taking, you know, a few minutes to think, okay, here's this person I think really their voice should be heard more. Who can I introduce them to? Uh, That doesn't take long at all. And I think you're right that a lot of times it can have a disproportionate effect.
5: Yeah. And I also think up in the downside for the sponsor is that it does require some like quote unquote capital. And what I mean by that is let's say you recommend someone to speak and they like don't show up or they do a terrible job like that reflects on you. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, if they're like, awesome, like that also reflects very positively on you, right? Or you recommend that, like, oh, I think, you know, my direct report, like, you know, I think she should work on this project for this other team, you tell this other team that and she knocks it out of the park, like that, again, reflects very positively on you. But like you said, I mean, sponsorship can be something um like fairly easy, like, one thing I mentioned in my blog post is Hillary Parker introduced me to a former colleague at Etsy. I talked for him with a little bit, he referred me and that's how I got my first data science job. Or a studio gave me a scholarship to attend um, the R Studio conference back in 2017, which was a great opportunity. But I do want to close with for mentorship, I think I think it can sound like a really big ask. And I sort of can be like, if you're like, can you be my mentor? But I, I do want people not to shy away necessarily from, you know, smaller acts of mentorship. So, for example, uh, reference in our book, like Mark Mellon's posts on uh, actually Trey Kazi's on reaching out to people. And one of the things he recommends is like have a specific ask. Like have done your research before. So, for example, you could be like, "Hey Trey, I really liked your post on you know uh, interviews. I was hoping you might have uh, twenty minutes to chat next week about whiteboard coding. Can I buy you a coffee at Pike Place? I am available at these times. Right? That's certainly not sponsorship. It would be like mentorship if that talk happens, but it doesn't have to be this super extensive. Like now we're in a relationship and we must meet weekly, right? It can even be this one-off thing that's very helpful.
4: That is a fantastic <laughs> point. Thank you for like laying out yeah. that that template for asking.
5: Yeah, I definitely recommend uh, we can link to in the show notes like Trey Cozzi has that post and he actually shows how like, you know, the first is sort of an example thing he'll often receive. And then he shows how he reworks it and why. Um, So like I said, things like you know offer to buy them coffee or lunch give a specific question rather than like the like can I pick your brain I think it's really important if the person does have some public work which they probably do since that's why you would reach out to them to show that you've you've read that or listened to their podcast or whatever um, and that you'll be asking them questions or asking about things that they haven't already covered in a place that you could find
2: yeah that I, I love that you brought that up I, I think one thing that's different about sponsorship is that it has a different focus and sort of what the advice is about or what you're trying to accomplish, but the other difference is it's often much more goal directed. It's not just will you be my sponsor? It's I'm going to help you get this raise. I'm going to help you get assigned to this project. I'm going to help you, you know, do this concrete, spe- accomplish this concrete specific goal. And I think mentorship works better that way too. Like you were saying, it's not will you be my mentor in this sort of general way. It's can you help me with X?
5: that's exactly it. And I think uh, that can be really helpful for people to think about too. And also to build it up gradually, right. To not necessarily start with like a big ass, like, so I don't know for, for sponsorship, that might be like, I want to be like the lead on this project. And I've never done anything like that before, but like, you can start showing, like, think of ways you could show that you're ready. Right. So, you know, one example might be, if you want to start speaking, maybe you could start with a lightning talk, which is like a five minute talk, like lower pressure, um, you know, if, if a local meetup, you know, at a local meetup group, right? If they don't do it, maybe ask them. It's less pressure for the meetup group too, because, you know, you'll have like, you know, maybe 10 people given five minute talks. Uh, it's not like, you know, they're all coming for one person and you get that recorded and then you can show people that. Or if you can't do that, maybe write a blog post. And it's not the same as speaking, but you can show that you can communicate well. Right. And so thinking about ways that, you can help build up the confidence of, you know, people you're, you're sort of asking or, or looking for sponsorship from that you'll do a good job with uh, if, if they do give you that opportunity.
3: I was speaking with a friend who is a social worker, and she was telling me how in her field, it's kind of considered a norm that you mentor. There's a formality around it. And that like, you know, when you're in your formal training, you're supposed to take, you know, it's expected that you're going to take people in for internships so they can get their field experience and graduate and get a job. And it's sort of considered, um, this is just what we do. And I'm not really sure how to what to say in terms of how that translates to our field, because, you know, there's people who are freelance, they might say, I'm paid for what I do, and uh, my time is money, and I can't necessarily mentor for free, or or there's lots of different ways that could be meant. You know, there's, there's not really a standard in terms of like, how would you get some kind of... You know, there's no such thing as like a formal internship necessarily. So I, I think it's kind of a really uncharted domain.
5: A couple of things here. One is so there's a website called DataHelpers.org. So Angela Bassa put this together, and basically it's people volunteering to help folks and to like mentor, or like get into chats. And often, like, they'll have, like, short bios being like, oh, specifically, like, what are they, could they help with, right? So what I'm reading now is, like, I'm happy to help with R, like, releasing your first R packages. You know, I am happy to help people who are looking to transition into a data career interested in the nonprofit sector. Um, so, like, that's one place, because I do think many people want to help with that, though. There are things that that help, for example, like I said, is, like, coming prepared. Like, one reason we wrote this book is it's a really scalable way to, like, help and to offer a lot of the advice rather than like, you know, people need to like find our email and like having 30 minute chats with everyone often what i will do now is I'll ask like if people reach out, I'll be like, you know, oh, I've like wrote this book. I don't necessarily expect everyone to read the book. So I'm like, I also wrote these blog posts. Uh, let me know if you have any follow up questions, um, because I think that's really the best use of both of our times. And I do think within companies, there can be a lot done for having mentorship recognized as part of the formal career ladder right? Because I think that can be something people think about, right? If it's like, because you might get, you know, the team may be better off overall, but maybe you get, you know, you have fewer commits or like other things, right? Are your projects a little bit slower because you're helping onboard someone or helping the junior data science? But I do think a healthy team will recognize that that's like important work for you to do. Um, and that in the long run, obviously that helps that person, but it also will help the team.
1: That's awesome. I I was just going to say that I'm going to assume that writing a book not only has solidified some of these things and reinforced the learning that you're kind of recommending, but also it holds you accountable as a leader. It puts you out there, you know, more, more kind of uh, more so than probably some of your peers who have never written a book or who write blog (laughs) posts. How has it changed or made your career better?
5: Yeah. So it's, so Manning, uh, where we published it has, they do something called an early release program. Uh, so it's been like the first five chapters first came available in, uh, May 2019, but the final book only came out about a month ago. Um, so it's still pretty new. I think we'll see the effects like longer term. But one thing that has helped is being able to like get back to people who ask, ask questions and being like, Hey, like I wrote, because I was doing this book, like I was able to take like you know hours to think about this. Jacqueline and I I think made each other's chapters a lot better. Um, so it was great for us both to write. Obviously we got feedback from uh, Manning sent it out for reviews. We got feedback from them. we got feedback from her. So I think it's like much stronger than if I had just written a blog post about that. And it's been really heartening to see because it was in this early release, like people already responding, um, especially when they do about like specific chapters that help them. Yeah. So I'm excited to see, you know, who else this can help or how it might impact my own career. But I think I I wrote it less of like, oh, this is definitely going to. Advance my career, which I think maybe a more technical book might have more, you know, if you become like known as the person who wrote like the book on, you know, natural language processing and R it might help you get a natural language processing job. I don't think necessarily I'm going to get my next job because I wrote this book, but I do hope that it can help other people with their own careers.
1: Was there anything that you learned that you weren't expecting out of the, you know, the process of partnering with her to write this book or about yourself, the field, anything in general? or specifically?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we definitely both learned was, so at the end of every chapter, we have an interview with a different data scientist, which was, um, we really wanted, we also have like sidebars and blurbs from data scientists around the book. But we did this because we wanted to get you know, more perspective than just the two of us. So we have, you know, engineering managers, excuse me, in data science. So Amanda Kasari, she's an engineering manager for Google Cloud. She was in uh, the military. You know, she has one perspective. We also have someone at Airbnb. We have someone working for the ACLU. So I think it was great to hear that diversity, but also that there were a lot of commonalities across it. And I think uh, in our epilogue, we talk about three of them that uh, I think we had an instinct for when we began the book, but really crystallized through writing in the interviews. And that's like data scientists need to be able to communicate. That was a huge theme that came across the book is like often people were saying like at the end of the day, it's not your technical skill. Like you, you do need a baseline of that, obviously. But at the end of the day, what makes the biggest difference is things like communication skills. It's also our second point was being proactive, right? So you're not going to get handed this like perfect problem. Uh, you know, real data science is fortunately not like a, like a Kaggle competition where it's like, here's all the data that's available. Um, and here's the well-defined question you need to answer. It's often much more messy than that. So you need to be proactive in. Working through that. And finally, as we talked about earlier, community and that that's really important both for advancement, but also just for, I think, like your emotional health and your happiness as a data scientist.
1: I love that. Those are in true, probably data science fashion. You paid attention to the things, (laughs) to the qualitative things and quantitative things. But I do think that those are interesting insights that you gained after kind of stepping away and and, uh, looking at the whole process.
2: I wanted to uh, circle back to the mentorship thing briefly. You mentioned that mentorship should be part of all our uh, formal career ladders. It should be something that's actually valued and incentivized at work, right? One of the things I've noticed is that very few companies actually train people to be mentors. And so for me, this is sort of like you get, quote, unquote, promoted from an individual contributor to a manager. You're suddenly expected to know how to do management things. And there's very little training there. and, And I think there's some awareness that that's a problem. But when you get promoted to a senior engineer and you're now supposed to be a mentor, I know of very few organizations that actually do that train senior engineers on how to be mentors.
5: Yeah, I think unfortunately you're you're right. And um and I think that's a great insight, right? Because I do think, as you said, there is starting to be more recognition of the management part, right? Like one, there's like a good amount of popular books out there um that I think are really good. We recommend some. In ours, there's also, you know, it's more common now to maybe have coaches available or to do, you know, programs like there's formal management training, but you're right. I haven't ever seen something of like, okay, we need to train, you know, senior engineers how to do it. But I think there's training, but I do think one thing that helps though is that the company could do is just recognition and like telling people like, this is an important part of your job, right? Because I think some folks do have that mindset or like natural inclination that they're like, oh, I really like want to help people. And I'll sort of prioritize that first, but some others don't. And so for them, it can be helpful to be told like, no, this, this is a really important part of your, your job. And one of my former colleagues at Etsy uh, wrote a great post about being a tech lead Which wasn't really a formal position at Etsy, but he basically took on and he talked a lot about, um, like what that means to him. And a big part of that was basically like my top priority is unblocking other people. And this means like I'm going to do a lot less like committing and like that sort of stuff on my own. And my my primary job is to help my team, uh, through things like code review or talking things through. You're right. I'm not sure like what a good solution to that is. And I think there could be more information and like books written out there about like, what's it like being uh, senior individual contributor? How do you mentor? I think also I saw someone on Twitter, there's very little loss about like, when you're changing orgs, what does it mean to come in as like a, you know, principal or very senior engineer? Right? Because I think that's that can be quite challenging. And not a lot of people have written about that experience.
2: Yeah, that's something I'm going through right now. And the resources that I can find to help me are very thin on the ground. So I'm mostly reaching out to other people who are in this org to say, what is it that people who have our title do? <laughs> what do you do? And I get different answers.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think maybe you need to write a blog post of your own uh, once you've, uh, you know, not necessarily about like oh the specifics, you know, your orgs that might be different, but like how you went about finding it out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> maybe if I blogged that's a thing I could blog about. <laughs> another, I think another issue with mentorship is that mentorship is, is a a system two, like a slow thinking thing. It's about learning, but being productive is a, is a system one, like fast thinking thing. I don't know if folks have read uh, thinking fast and slow, but there's what Martha Acosta would call a paradox here, which is you want people to be better at mentors, but what you incentivize them to do is produce. And those things seem to be incompatible.
5: Yeah. It's also hard because, you know, sort of very related to that is it can be harder to measure. Right. It's like, well, now do you start measuring like your mentees commits? Like, is that, you know, or, like their code? Uh, you know, is it their satisfaction like with, with your mentorship? Like sort of how do you and, and I think that's why people can shy away from it versus selling like, oh, you shipped to like, you know, this many products or you squash this many bugs um, or so on. That's a challenge, and I think part of that is so. Etsy released a career ladder uh, on their on their blog, an engineering career development ladder, and actually, it was very interesting. So I think it's a great ladder, but it was interesting. One thing they actually shied away from was doing too much quantitative. Because uh, the problem that they found, like, for example, rather than saying like, oh, you know, you need to, you know, speak at two or more conferences, because, you know, that could be limited by your role, your team or like, you know, a personal situation, and it might not actually get at like the real intent behind what this competency is trying to like, what, what is, you know, the reason of speaking is like, maybe, I don't know, you have like a presence in the broader community, like, maybe that's like the core thing you're trying to do, or you contribute to it. And there may be a lot of ways besides speaking that you can do this. So actually they say like there's no they don't have like score calculation or graphing an individual and they talk about, you know, they find that this they can still work to reduce subjectivity. Otherwise, it's very it's a lot of potential for bias to creep in. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do like rigid numerical guidelines and quantify everything.
2: So um, on my bookshelf, I have the book How to Measure Anything. And next to it on my bookshelf, I have the book The Tyranny of Metrics. And I like to think that they're fighting it out. (laughs)
5: yeah i mean there is also the what's that like you know that that saying it's like kind of whenever anything becomes like a a metric or a target it becomes useless basically right because people can figure out how to game it and i see that too yeah and i and i do think you're right that it that there is some like push or pull and there's not necessarily right answer here but like just trying to keep things in balance because there are there are you know, benefits having some metrics, and there are drawbacks. And so, you know, sometimes there there's no shortcut to, to just doing kind of like thoughtful, thoughtful work.
2: So this actually leads into a question I've been meaning to ask for a while, which is about data science that's directed externally, you know, at customers, at markets, at the environment, versus data science that's directed internally, you know, at how teams work, how the organization is performing, all of those things. I my very limited perspective is that most data science is focused on like analyzing customer data or marketing campaigns or things or ads or things like that. How, How many people are doing, like how many organizations and people are doing data science on like internal organizational things?
5: One area that that's common in is sometimes they're called like people scientists, but data scientists in HR. So like Google, for example, has a big team of this. And, you know, they released, they had something called like Project Aristotle, which was around understanding our teams work. They also do like tons of work on like trying to understand hiring. And there it's a mix of, you know, uh, some social science, right? There's a lot of good literature out on this of like, how do we mitigate bias in hiring? Um, You know, a big point there is doing structured interviews, also literature on teamwork, and then mixing that with like data they collect internally about the org. So I think that's the biggest place that I've seen of like people analyzing internally, because a lot of other data, it's like, yeah, it's like our, you know, a data camp, it could be like, how many, uh what are our most popular courses? Like, yeah, it's kind of internal data, but like, they're taken by external people, right? So that wouldn't really exist if like, we had no interaction with the outside world versus like, Google and like people scientists, that that kind of data would still happen.
1: All right. I want to ask this question then, because I feel like we have you on here. We don't have as many female data scientists on the show very often, but I would love to just kind of talk about the obvious that we don't see enough women in data science. And so Wondering if there's anything that you can kind of talk about here in terms of your experience. I'm sure that when you were, if you, ref, if you reflect back to your younger self, you maybe didn't foresee that you were going to be a data scientist. And I'm, I'm really thinking again about these women or, or young women, um, and people of color, marginalized folks who may think this is a great career. We, we see that this is a top career choice right now, but I don't think people really know how to get there. And I think, you know, as we see with the trends in terms of STEM, for instance, it's the same situation. We just don't, we don't see as many girls and, and women getting into STEM and kind of um, keeping with it or people of color. So any recommendations, any kind of firsthand or secondary experience you can offer in, re- in response to that?
5: Yeah. So I have lots of thoughts about that. The first is I think like for a marginalized group, having a community like is even more important and especially like finding a community of other people um, with similar backgrounds. So I had mentioned our ladies. There's also, uh, so Gabriella who started that, she just started a new thing called AI inclusive to make artificial intelligence more inclusive. There's, uh, Pi ladies. There is, I think it's called URG, a group that just started for like, you know, sort of wide ranging, like all underrepresented groups in data science. There's a group called, I believe, black and AI, so I do think it's really important to try to find some some role models. I also do think, honestly, it's important to, you know, seriously consider the types of of companies or programs that you're going to join, and to look at, you know, I think it's easy for companies to say like, oh, like we really, well, like the first step is like even them maybe like recognizing there's an issue with having, say, you know, like their engineers or something be, you know, five percent women or like one percent people of color. So like. Some companies are not even quite there and some are, but they they really think of it as like, oh, it's only like if we only just hire more, like then everything would be fine. But like, oh, maybe they don't exist. And there's a great post by Rachel Thomas uh, that's debunking the pipeline myth of like, actually, there are people there. And often a bigger problem is the environment they face when they get in the field. And so I do think it's really important to ask some critical questions. I actually was very fortunate, like Etsy, I think it's around. 30% women engineers, which is definitely better than the field advancing on people of color. And it's funny, I didn't realize how many like senior women engineers I knew. And like that, that's not very common at a lot of companies. And even though I didn't like work directly with them, I realized like, wow, actually, like that was pretty cool. And like really important. And like Etsy's leadership team is 50% women. I am, you know, uh, this is partly reflective of like the the Etsy sellers or like I think 85% women, but I do think it's important for folks to really think about like, is this going to be a good environment for me? You can look at the representation, you can look at like what initiatives they're doing. And I think like in general, like companies have become more aware of this, but to be a little bit skeptical and to really try to find an environment that will not tokenize you and takes these kind of things seriously. Yeah, I, I
1: appreciate that because I, those are all great resources you just listed. I'm going to try to um, make, grab links and put them in the show notes for everyone who's listening. And um, I just appreciate the fact that you're, that you're thinking about it and you, you've clearly had some conversations with folks uh, throughout the industry. I I would love to kind of know, maybe hearing your own voice, why you think it's important to have, you know, diverse representation, especially in data science, as we move towards a more data-driven world.
5: I mean, so one is, you know, as we're building these products, like, you know, some of you might have heard about there were, um I think it was like some, maybe some like hand soap or like Google products that like wouldn't recognize like darker skin tones, um because it, that wasn't in the training data, you know, so facial recognition as well. So, you know, hopefully that would be less common if some of those people were represented in the teams making it. But I also think like you, you know, want the, you know, one, it's like there, there's a lot of people, a lot of companies looking for data science benefit from these skills, like you want people who are good and, you know, if we do believe, which I hope people do that, like, you know, there's no like, you know, it's not like white people or men are like inherently better at this then you know, opening up these opportunities, you're going to get, you're going to get stronger people, you're going to get stronger teams, because these folks have these skills or can gain these skills. Uh, and so it's important to help encourage that. And I do think, like, there are very encouraging signs, like in our book, you know, I think half or more of our interviews were women, and that was not even a challenge, like, especially in our, like, you just can't, I don't know how you could like make a um, and I, and unfortunately I've seen it at one conference in particular, but like making a speaker lineup, that's all men. I'm just like, you, you would have to like very deliberately do that. Right. If, if, if you ask a bunch of people like, Oh, who are some of like the top R programmers you think of, or, or, you know, blog posts or other things like, Influencers, um, a lot of women naturally rise to the list. I think there's a lot more work to be done for having other underrepresented groups like people of color. But I do think like, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, it's all like so horrible and bleak out there. Uh, like there's definitely been, and I think our ladies is a big part of why. Um, you have that, and so I think there are efforts and work that people are doing uh, to make the field more inclusive. I also saw, I think it's Guido van Rossum, like the creator of Python, like making a commitment to mentor um, underrepresented groups. Um, I've seen that with the Python core, how they're changing their practice to bring in a more diverse set of people.
1: That was great. <laughs> that was really good. I agree with all that you just said, um, and I would love to see more diversification and um, you know a, a, a bigger push for this as we move. You know, closer to this kind of place where people have, like I said, access to technology and resources like we've never seen before. I have a, a gut feeling that we're going to see some things shift with edu- with education and universities, kind of. And you know, after coronavirus, that maybe will help folks get into more programming and stuff like that. More like university programs get accepted and change the way that we're that we're teaching people in the first place. So I don't know. The world could be different next year. We'll we'll see.
5: Yeah. And I do think there are some successful efforts. Um, I'll definitely include like Harvey Mudd, which is one of the top um, computer science programs in the country. I think now has uh, 50% women computer science undergraduates. And this didn't happen by accident. Like there was some effort, but it's like it is certainly possible. And I think there's a lot to learn there about how other groups have succeeded, not just in, in raising the representation, but in making it an, an inclusive environment.
1: Yeah. Touche. I think, and I want to say, I think Rice too had some. I've been making some efforts to try to bring in more females. Is that right? You you attended Rice, so maybe you know.
5: Yeah, although it's funny because statistics actually has historically been, um, even at the graduate level, like mostly 50% women. Um, there's not great, Unfortunately, there's not great data on non-binary folks. But yeah, so it's interesting. I know, and I wonder if that's part of why R is more inclusive, because um, a lot of people come from a statistics background versus a computer science background.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know. But I want to hear the data on that.
5: <laughs> I yeah. want somebody to do it, to do a project on
1: that, and I will definitely read it.
5: <laughs> oh yeah, actually, I can send. I'll send a blog post. Rishma actually wrote one. Why are women uh, flourishing in R but lagging in Python? I do actually want to add a quick note. I did take some computer science classes at Rice, and they were actually there were a lot of efforts around the curriculum to make it more inclusive, one of which being redesigning the intro course to make it more project based and also more accessible to people who never programmed before. And to go away from this assumption that like, Oh, to succeed in computer science, like you need to have programmed before. um, Because that is that it it was less likely that the women in the courses would have, and that could really dissuade people. Well, shout out
1: to Rice university
5: for that. (laughs) That's awesome.
2: Who has a reflection?
4: Uh, I think mine's very simple. It's just mentorship does not have to be a huge commitment to be useful and that sponsorship is often as important or more important than mentorship.
1: One of the things that feels overwhelming is I do get hit up a lot about, you know, helping people. And I think sponsorship is a way that I can maybe more strategically try to kind of nudge people down that pathway. I can, I can sponsor you. And when you mentioned that, you know, it it requires some capital, but then you kind of uh, went further and said, or you, you explained there's like some social capital there. I would, wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go in your pocket and, you know, write a check, but it could mean that like your reputation's on the line. So just like, what are the things we're willing to do for people who need an extra boost or a push or some support? And I think that that's going to be a big thing for the year, given all the things we're seeing already, people experiencing some layoffs or folks who maybe are getting excited about graduating and they're nervous about getting a job right now, since our economy could be in a recession. So um, just I I love that you brought that up. And that was something we spent a lot of time with today. Thank you.
3: I was just thinking about how mentorship is actually really possible without the mentor even knowing that they were mentoring someone. (laughs) I can share that like numerous panelists on this podcast, including several on this call, um, have said things either on the podcast or elsewhere that have stuck in my mind and I've used to shape my career. And it wasn't because I asked about it or I solicited, it was just something that I was able to draw upon. So yeah, I guess that's a call for action for everybody. Just sort of think about how the ideas you're putting out in the world could be useful to someone, even if you aren't intentionally trying to be a mentor directly.
2: I have two very quick ones. One is that if you're a mentor and your mentees aren't coming to you with already formed concrete goals for what they want to accomplish, it's your job to coach them into that as a mentor. And the second is, I guess I'm writing a blog post now. Great. Thanks. I feel like I've been assigned homework.
5: (laughs) I think you have, because I was actually going to say like, um, my biggest reflection is this there. I don't think there are enough resources for um, senior engineers on the non technical side of things um, right, both, both for maybe advancing their own career, but also for, you know, part of their responsibility now is to help others and how do they do that. Um, so I think that's something that now I'm going to be keeping an eye out more for, uh, including your blog posts, hopefully, uh, and maybe yeah. <laughs> one day uh, contributing that myself, because um, I think that's uh, that's definitely a gap that I'm seeing.
2: Well, we just want to thank you, Emily, for coming on the show today. I hope people go check out your book, Build a Career in Data Science from Manning, that you co-authored with Jacqueline Norris. In fact, Manning has been kind enough to give our listeners a discount code. The giving listeners of the show a permanent 40% discount, which is good for all products in all formats for everyone. Again, this is a permanent discount code for all Greater Than Code listeners. Use the code podgrate 20 every time you shop Manning. That's P-O-D. GREAT20. Thank you again, Emily, and thank you to Manning, and we'll talk to you all again next week.